Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodman, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. This week's guest is Ron Collins, a very enthusiastic writer winner back in 1998. He is one of our iconic photos for Writers of the Future with him kissing his frame certificate after having been announced. He was initially published in WIF 14 as a finalist with the story, The Disappearance of Josie Andrew, and then the following year as a winner in volume 15 with his story, Out of the Blue. He has since gone on to write at least two dozen novels in multiple genres, sci-fi, fantasy, and political thriller. His name recently came up when I was having dinner with Dean Wesley Smith and Chris Rush, which sparked my asking him to join me today. I had the distinct pleasure of reading a few novels in the Stealing the Sun series to prepare for this interview. Welcome, Ron. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. And yes, that picture is uh, always one of my favorite memories of my experience. And I like to uh, I like to think that I know that there have been several people who have come back twice, right? Uh, in fact, my class had I had three of us published finalists one year and then back the next. But I'm uh, still relatively certain that I am the only person walking the planet Earth who has stood on a Writers of the Future stage and kissed two plaques. So, Absolutely. You have that distinct <laughs> honor. All right. So, so how's your story as an author start? Oh, boy. Um, you know, I, I think, like most, I think, people who end up writing for a long time, I've, I've always kind of dilly-dallied around with it. Um, but for me, it really started um, when I was working, uh, when I had gotten out of college and I was working as an engineer by degree, and I'd been uh, sent to a, a six-week liaison in Washington, D.C., and I spent that first week doing all the touristy things and so forth, and then um, I sat in, I remember like a Friday night sitting there going, well, I'm all by myself here in Washington, D.C. I got five weeks what am I going to do? And I finally thought, you know, well, I could just write. Um, nobody has to see me here. I get five total weeks cloistered around and, and doing my doing my thing. And so I'd always kind of told myself I was going to write, but I was too busy working. And, you know, was, I had a kind of high-powered job. And so, yeah, I started at that stage um, going home every night and starting to pound the keyboards. And I had such great fun. I wrote like 35,000 words of horrible fiction. <laughs> um, but, but even then, I, I knew that once I started going, I said, you know, I'm going to do this forever now. I had written some in high school and some in college, and I kind of quit to do the professional stuff. But once I started going, it was like, okay, I'm, I'm never going to stop this. I need to figure out what this is. So. I immediately went down into the basement of my of my furnished apartment there in D.C. and looked at what used to be called a bookstore. Go and get books. Right? Um, that used to be where I'd spend all my time. And so I got a copy of the Novel Writers Market, the big thick thing that talked about where writers could sell their stuff, right? Because I thought, well, if I'm going to do this forever, I'm, I mean, I want to make it a career. Here I am. A, my first 30,000 words of horrible fiction, and I'm thinking, make it a career. And um, so cutting a long story short, 
Yes, um, I deemed by looking at all these markets that were all the thousands of markets that were out there for uh, writers that obviously you could make a living doing this. And so my naivete of not knowing how hard that was helped me <laughs> uh, because yeah. at that stage I, I was kind of off and running. And so when I came back home, I talked to my wife and said, okay, honey, you're married to a writer. I don't know what that means, but you're going to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my kind of my kickstart uh, from that was back in the gosh late 80s right so I've been doing this for for quite a while and I think the bottom line for that to me is that whole thing I when I started off I knew I was going to do this forever it, it just wasn't going to be a uh, let's see how this plays um, it, it meant something big to me and that's important it's been important to me because it's been a very long <laughs> cycle with ups and downs and yeah. all sorts of stuff. Yeah, definitely. We're going we're gonna to address that, those ups and downs in this, in yeah. this interview here. But so now you're a full-time writer. So at, at what point did you uh, switch from being an engineer doing engineering stuff to being able to stop doing that and, and rely upon your income from yeah. writing? Um, I've been a full-time writer since uh, 2013. So, but it was a kind of a long haul to get to that point. Like I said, I was, I'm an engineer by degree and I had a, a series of jobs that I, I mean, I really liked, you know, I mean, I, and I was, yeah. I consider myself to be good at it. A lot of people said I was good at it and, and they paid me, you know, good money for that. But yes, once I kind of determined that you could make your living doing this, the next step was figuring out, did I actually really have the talent to do it because while I was naive and so forth, I was also, I'm also a realist, <laughs> right? You have to figure yeah. out whether you can actually do the work, which the contest was great at helping me figure that out. <laughs> um, yeah. Or at least give me a, an open, open window to that. So we, my, we, my wife and I uh, have worked on this for quite a long time. So we understood in the early days, in fact, Chris and Dean, uh, Chris Rush and Dean Leslie Smith helped us out quite a bit in the early stages. They didn't really know us, but we went to a couple of other things and um, a couple of other writers. Mike Resnick is another great mentor of mine in the early days, helped him figure out what it meant yeah. to be a writer professionally, meaning the dollars and cents. And can we get, you know, can we actually make this work? Uh, so my wife and I really worked on our finances a lot, right? We we became not cheap, but frugal, right? When we wanted something, we went out, we got the best we could get. So we didn't have to replace it <laughs> and so forth. And we worked very hard sense. to pay yeah. off our house early. And, uh, you know, we created a foundation of our finances to where we didn't have to worry about things. And so it wasn't until about 2013 Actually, more like about 2012 or so, when my wife finally came to me and said, okay, Ron, when you're writing, you're always super happy. When you're working, you're either really happy or really not happy. So you should just quit your job and we can handle this. And uh, it took me about six months to come to the point where I believed her. <laughs> and uh, mm -hmm. so that's that's kind of how that happened. She She finally crowbarred me out of the corporate world and into the into the world of being a full-time writer. And, uh, and so the bottom line is, you know, we worked very hard to get to the point where we didn't need as much income if we had lean years, because we knew there were going to be lean years. And um, 
So we kind of scale our spending up and down depending on how things go. Right. You know, Kevin Anderson, Rebecca Mesta, they had a formula they used. They had a year's worth of expenses set aside in the bank before they quit their day job. And then they, and the points that they had a, a year's worth, that's when they said, okay, we're done with, with our day jobs and went full-time professional writers on both of yeah. them. Did you have any type of a formula you were using to, to decide besides your wife taking the crowbar? Um, that, I mean, that's a fantastic um, uh, frame of reference. The other point, we had a daughter at the time, and so we wanted more than a year's worth of, of, uh, of pad. And then the second piece was um, when I first started writing, uh, my wife was copy editing. So she was doing freelance work and didn't have benefits. Uh, by the time that uh, we had gotten to a point where I could uh, move out of the corporate world, she had a corporate world. And so she had benefits and she had insurance. So for us, the more secure thing was, can we get insurance? <laughs> right, And that was right. before the Affordable Health Care Act and other things where now my wife doesn't work anymore, but we can access insurance uh, through the Affordable Health Care Act that was not really available to us. Uh, in the past, and now our daughter has grown and in, in living her own life, so we don't have to worry so much about whether we're going to uh, to make a, a little girl destitute <laughs> if we make right, a bad right. choice. But, um, so I think that's another okay. piece of you know there are different new writers coming through in different ways. When I was starting, the security aspect. If I were all by myself, I probably would have quit my job earlier because the ramifications would have just been to me. Uh, whereas right. you know, when you have a, a wife and a family, you're <laughs> you're feeling a little sure. more pressure. That, makes sense. <laughs> that, that totally makes sense. All right, so now stealing the sun. That was um, it was really easy to get into that into that series. So that evolved from your 24 hour story from Writers of the Future, the workshop there where you're supposed to write a 24 hour story. So how that all come yeah, about? Thank you. First off, uh, thanks for the comment because. Um, it's a, it's a story that obviously is very uh, dear to me. Uh, yes, it was one of the 24-hour stories uh, that uh, I wrote there in my first uh, year at uh, Writers of the Future. And, you know, the classic kind of gestalt thing where uh, Dave Wolverton at the time, Dave Farland, I, I have a hard time calling him Dave Farland because I've known him as Dave Wolverton so, so much. You sure, um, yeah you know, walked around and essentially had everyone contribute something into a pile and then redistributed everything. And so I got uh, Amy uh, Sterling Castle's pen and uh, pencil holder, right, a little leather satchel with round tubes in it. And, you know, they said, you know, you look at it and think about it and try to imagine what it might be if it wasn't a pen and pencil holder and so forth. And so those became the... Uh, essentially wormhole torpedo tubes, right? I was saying, well, what would go in those things? Well, I mean, it'd be a, kind of like a torpedo. You look like torpedo tubes. And, okay, I'm a science fiction guy. What would I do there? Well, no, they wouldn't be torpedo tubes. They'd be wormhole tubes. You shoot them off and they do, you know. Um, but then I had a second piece because I was out beginning to work on the draft. And I remember being there in Los Angeles out on the patio and the sun is coming down and there was a bowl of fruit there with these great big beautiful oranges, right? And the oranges became the sun. And so, well, they're shooting the wormhole poles into the sun. What would they do that for, right? And uh, out came the root of the story, you know, that I wrote. Actually, the core of the story was written in a couple of hours, really, which is, a, which is always a fun 
that. Wow. Yeah. And then the last little kicker of that is as I'm sitting there, um, Carla Montgomery, who was one of the attendees of that first year for me, walked in and she says, what's your story about? And I gave her like one or two line tagline and she says, oh, they're stealing the sun. And I went, oh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow, that's an amazing backstory. Yeah, and then the super fun thing that uh, I had the great pleasure of attending while Algis Budris was uh, still alive and involved in the project, and he was such a genius. Uh, and I admired him. I read his. Um, I strongly suggest any new writer read his writing to the point. If you want to learn how to write stories and story structure, that's fantastic. But he. Uh, during the night that we go through and critique, you know, read all the stories and stuff, he was not feeling well uh, at the end. And so he missed critiquing my story. So he made it up to me by having breakfast with me that following morning to give me his critique in person. I'm going, oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but the best yeah. thing was we sat down and he's got my manuscript there and he just pushes it over to me over the table, you know, and he says, pretty good. Send it off. And that was it. The rest of the time we talked about careers, which was. <laughs> which was wow. 24 hour story. Send it off. This is only That's right. critique. pretty good. Send it off. I'll, I'll remember good. that for as long as I can remember. I will remember. Yeah, absolutely. But that's amazing how that came to be, too. It, it's it's so interesting how sometimes these epic storylines you're like, wow, how did you think of that? How did that come up? And then just what you just said right there, which is also part of the, which has come up several times before, part of the brilliance of the Rise of Future workshop and that whole formula of, there's that one essay by Owen Hubbard on um, story out of the hat, mm -hmm. you know, where his editor, uh, Ed Bodine, tells him, okay, here's, uh, turns over trash and says, here you go. And he says, okay, it becomes a kabanka. And that's that whole right. story that evolves from that. Are there any parts of the of the uh, workshops either time that you attended that still stick in your your head so many years later? Uh, well, I mean, the in addition yeah, to breakfast, in, with the <laughs> yeah, there are so many. <laughs> I mean, when you have such an intense, um, I remember walking out of that first week's experience, right, and it is just a, such a intense experience between the workshop itself, right, and the writing. And I know the first week that I went there, I, I told myself I was going to write a story every day, right? And I ended up writing eight mm -hmm. stories while I was there, right? Because I, I wanted to just immerse, you know, I wanted to be there and be a writer. And, and then, of course, the big gala that happens afterwards is almost impossible to describe, even if you see it, you know, you have to be it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I yeah. remember afterwards sitting in the, um, in the airport in the quiet and everything just settling down and going well Ron that is never going to happen to you again <laughs> but lo and behold a year later <laughs> but there's just so many experiences and um, you know the workshops itself I think to get into the raw writing piece right because uh, I can go through mm -hmm. 15 snapshot experiences <laughs> Uh, for me, the, the the two writing things that I carry over even today, and it's been, you know, gosh, what is it, 24, 23 years, however long it's been. Yeah. The two things that I really carry today um, are, number one, uh, there's a, what is it, um, what is art or something like that, the 
the message that I talk to new writers about when they start, you know, getting into this writing fast thing, right? Can you actually write a story in a day? Well, of course you can, but is it any good? Well, sometimes they're even better than the ones that you chug through, right? Because you're into creative brain and so forth. And, you know, the message that I get is, Anything that creates an emotional impact at the end is, in quotes, good enough, right? And sometimes yeah. people will read that and say, oh, good enough. I don't want to be just good enough. I want to be brilliant. And go, you don't realize how hard it is <laughs> to create an emotional impact <laughs> at the end, right? That's, that's, uh, L. Ron yeah. Hubbard was greatly underplaying that, um, underplaying that aspect. And then the other thing that I carry over that I actually think of differently today than I did when I first ran into it is the whole, um, what is it, the manuscript factory where he goes through and yeah. and analyzes at the end of every year or some period the different things that are working for him and what he's able to sell and he's not able to sell and he's trying to do something. Um, when I first experienced that, it was kind of... Um, uh, mind altering because I was thinking I need to be thinking about these from all my markets and so forth, right? But in reality, what I think about it today is not so much markets and so forth. It's more about if you're going to be a long-term writer, you need to be constantly self-assessing yourself, right? You need to understand where you're at, where you want to go, um, and it's not good enough just to sit down and write your brilliant writings, <laughs> right? It's, yeah. you, you have to be a full artist. You have to be a full, uh, a full blown participant in what you're creating over the long haul. And so I, I, I actually, I go back and think of those two things often. Great. Thank you. All right. So anything else from the um, workshop that you got those two things, do you still maintain friends relationships with uh Either year? Um, number one, I, I about every six months or a year, maybe I kind of duck in and look at what everyone else has been doing, <laughs> you know, from the from the group. Um, Scott and Amy, uh, obviously, have a um, yeah. I have a um, a stronger uh, a strong personal connection to Scott and Amy from the viewpoint that we were both uh, all three, you know, in both sessions. Sure. Uh, Scott, I've occasionally touched base with uh, more from a professional standpoint because he was so much ahead of me on the independent uh, curve, right? Yeah. Uh, so he was um, was a, uh, a partial mentor at certain points, and mostly I, I admire the heck out of him. <laughs> and uh, Amy, I still contact quite a bit. Uh, I don't think she's writing fiction so much anymore. She's doing a lot of social commentary and so forth, um, but she's... Um, we actually have a fun, another fun memory of that is our second time together. We actually wrote a weird um, collaboration in the middle of writing our 24-hour stories. We wrote our 24-hour stories by giving each other prompts. And then in between, we sat uh, at the same table face-to-face, -face, and we wrote a collaboration between, we took the two prompts that we had, and we wrote a collaboration, and we swapped it back and forth. So like I I think I started writing my own story and she wrote the collaboration and then 30 minutes later she sent me back the file and she started writing her own story and I wrote on the collaboration. So we got three stories. Wow, out of that. in 24 hours. Yeah, and um, we're still actually trying to find a, a uh, market for that third one because it's kind of weird, <laughs> but we both really love it. 
Um, okay, good. So, yes. Yeah. So yeah, I, I try to keep in touch with them, but uh, Scott Mo, uh, Steve Mohan was in my second session, and uh, I run into him on several workshops. He's a fantastic writer, um, still doing stuff. Uh, Jim Hines, I occasionally drop notes to. I just saw yeah. that uh, Scott Huggins is back uh, writing again after I think some life uh, issues, so I, I need to reach out and touch base with him. Uh, it's a it's a neat little. Uh, camaraderie of spirit to be a part of the contest and all of the people that are associated yeah that's way cool now your story stealing the sun what's interesting the first thing that got me was that you got three protagonists so you've got three separate storylines that are moving forward and it's it's a seven book series nine book series yeah, it's a nine book series nine book series and they all even despite how life-threatening and keep things going those three darlings <laughs> stay going you know take a licking and keep on ticking but it's amazing how they you know they interweave and the, they're very close and then they separate out and then they're very close it's just so how's that going now creating a series <laughs> you know did you already always envision it as nine books or that i was going to have a long <laughs> curve or how'd that go because it's it's very rare that you see some with three protagonists major storylines going all throughout the entire series with a single author <laughs> did i always envision it as a nine book series as a as a hidden uh, dig <laughs> <laughs> uh no 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 um in the early days i envisioned it as the classic you know trilogy uh kind of a, of a thing but then i realized um and this is, uh, we could go a whole bunch of different directions on this. Uh, I realized it was not a trilogy. It had to be five books. It definitely had to be five books. And then I got to five books. I said, no, it's got to be six. There's no question it has to be six. And then I got to six. And I went, oh, no, it's nine. Son of a gun. Um, but, um, yeah, I, first off, thank you. I, I live vicariously through all of my characters, which I think is probably not unusual for most writers, um, yeah. a lot anyway. Uh, I'm a, I think of myself as a character writer rather than an idea writer. And um, whether that's true or not, uh, please nobody tell me otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I, I love all of those characters. At the end of the day, I think if I spread out over the nine books, uh, I I uh, consider myself to have really an ensemble of about nine different characters as they've rolled through time. And, um, and all of them, in my mind, are having something to say about, um, about leadership when it really comes right down to it. They all come from different positions and, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, they fit. I tend to spend a lot of time in my, in quotes, free time, my research time doing uh, things on history of like World War One and World War Two, And I'm not really interested in the battles and so forth, but I get interested in the idea that a battle changes or that the situation changes because of what three tiny people, you know, little, the little people did. It's not the Eisenhowers and the so forth. It's the people right. on the ground doing something, right? Right. And those are the people who intrigue me and get me excited. And so most of the characters that I have in here, um, even those that are actually in more leadership positions, are oftentimes not those with a whole lot of power, but you get things done through the way you 
influence others or by getting things done, you influence others or mm -hmm. so forth. Um, and so in that sense, that's one of the things that I would get myself caught up into the storyline and go, oh, I don't know where to go with this one. You know, well, what does this mean to everyone else? Or what does this character's behavior mean to everyone else around them? And, um, right. That helped me. That generally helps me also understand what the character's behavior ought to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So on. So let's, you say we can go lots of different what directions. I wanted to be able to address this because uh, obviously this is the Writers of the Future podcast, and we're interested in you know tips and inspiration and, and whatnot for writers. But how you do that and how you keep the interest level up for yourself you know, but also how you can keep, like, sometimes it's really easy to keep a central protagonist and that's, he's the guy, okay, you're rooting for him and you're like, oh no, please don't happen. Oh, it just happened to him. You don't want that. But now you got, for me, it was the three, you said there's way more than that, but the ones that I got to know were the, those three mm -hmm. and um, just how you, how you go about doing that as a writer and the research to be able to keep all three of those lines really strong and each one is, is a, I read them as all as protagonists. Mm -hmm. Well, first I, I definitely always like the idea uh, that every, you know, every character is the protagonist of their own story. So I'm trying to tell fully more fully fledged stories uh, across uh, a, a suite of characters, right? So three right. serious characters in the, in the first book, uh, the second book is going to introduce you to another one that will end up carrying through. And then the third book will end up introducing you to a collection of more. And it actually gets tied up. Uh, the how-to uh, for me gets tied up into things like the mechanics of storytelling, right? Which, again, Algis Budry's right to the point. Live it, know it, breathe it, right? Yeah. Um, so that's just mechanically what, you know, what does this character's problem, what is this character's problem? How are they going to logically try to solve it? And uh, I find that it's uh, the thing, you know, to make myself excited is to put myself in that character's shoes and to stop being Ron Collins and start being Torrance Black, right? Who is Torrance Black? Why is he doing, oh, that's interesting. I really, here's his background. You know, I, I wrote a little scene with him sitting in his backyard as a kid with his dad watching the stars just because I was thinking, where does his, uh, where does this piece, right? And I love that. I, obviously, yeah. I wrote it years ago and I still, uh, still can, my hair can still stand on end when I think about it. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's one of the things I would tell anyone who's trying to write is really just get into your characters and love them to death and become them. Stop being you and become the characters. Uh, obviously, the characters carry pieces of me in them before it's all said and done. Even the ones that I don't, <laughs> even the parts of me that I don't like so much, I put into some of the other characters that come along <laughs> later. <laughs> right? We're not all perfect human beings and we have, yeah. we have negative thoughts. So. Uh, and then the next piece of that is, um, you know, within the context of the science and there's a lot of, there's uh, time dilation and there's faster than light travel and, you know, I'm putting those two things together. And so how does the technology and the science of the world that I'm working with play with each one of the character sets, right? 
mm-hmm. without giving away too much. The books, the, one of the odd things about this series is either book one, two, or three could be used as an entryway into the series. Once you're through the first three, then they kind of have to be read in sequence. in sequence. But really, one, two, or three could in, act as an entryway because they span across different time periods. Book one is all about um, classic space travel slower than light and so you get time travel by time dilation right (laughs) right um it introduces faster than light travel to some degree but really book two is where that begins to come into play and so i had time diagrams all over the place right and that was so much fun for me because it hits all of my um all of my techie buttons my engineering i was a as well as an engineer, I, I was a, um, for a couple of years, I was president of an astronomy club and I got to talk with a whole bunch of different, um, really super experts in, in astronomy, thinking about these things. And so I was playing with star charts and time mm-hmm. passes and all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, I, if that kind of thing gets you excited, then you should do it. <laughs> right. You should write the things that get you excited. If you, if you find yourself in the middle of writing something, and you're not excited by the characters and the situations and so forth, then either you're not writing the the right thing or you're in the middle of the book blahs and you just need to push through and things will be brilliant again. <laughs> hmm. um, so I don't know if I'm really answering your question totally. You are. I just, because I wanted to just go into a little bit, just explore and see where it took us about your story. Because you, you, you referenced there, which is one of the things I wanted to ask you about, you know, the, the, that bridging between science fact and science fiction. So at least what's currently still science fiction. It's not to say that in 10 years it won't become science fact, but you have time dilation at the beginning, but then you introduce uh, FTL faster than light uh, travel where they're going back in their, in their time dilation and below speed of light. And then someone else comes up and catches to them, you know, you know, and they're, They've gone faster than light. So you've, you've got those things merging together. Um, what kind of an engineer are you? I am a mechanical engineer by degree, and most of my work was in um, software engineering and electronics engineering. Um, okay. Yeah. So on that, because I know a lot of the – that makes sense because some of the stuff that had – that were problems or that you got into on the schematics and working out when um, – <laughs> near the end of the first book there where they have issues and the saboteur and that whole thing that happens, there's a lot of electronic stuff. And so there's, you have a good feel for that. So that was very believable what you were saying. Thank you. So I'm just, yeah, I was just curious how much, you know, write what you know is a, is a, is a common adage. And if you don't know, then learn do research so that you can actually tell a plausible story there, yeah. but how much you, you work on, what you what you had as an engineer versus what you had to further research, and then how you had to feather it in with science fiction to make it all, you know, the willing suspense of disbelief. Yeah, well, I mean that, that's a that's a fun question. Um, yeah, you know, when it comes right down to it, the most important thing to me, um, I, I write a lot for analog. You'll find I had. I don't know, 25 or 30 stories in analog, and I've got a couple more coming out. A couple of them have been about time dilation in uh, 
particular uh, decadet was one that was about a grandfather who was traveling and coming back to see his great 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 grandson and another uh, when you write for analog you need to be able to write science believably before mm -hmm. it's all said and done yeah there's some uh, there's always some place where you're kind of jumping off the uh, off the beaten path right uh, but that's the kind of old saw that get all the science right that you can so that when you ask the reader to take that one leap that they're willing to take the one leap um, right you know and people you know writers break that all the time there's oftentimes great science fiction stories that don't really have any believable science in it whatsoever and they work just fine right as long as you're able to enjoy them and so for me the story is first um, I don't really um, I mean, I can remember Rob Sawyer, for example, does a whole bunch of research and then kind of writes his work, right? I write the stories and then figure out along the way what I need. And sometimes you, if you look at my early drafts, you'll see these places where I have big brackets where go figure out what, <laughs> you know, and I'll <laughs> highlight those in yellow so I don't forget them, <laughs> right? And things like that. Um, but to me, the story is, is, is first. But... I also have a great deal of joy about learning these, uh, learning new things, right? And I've mentioned Rob Sawyer. Um, one of the things I just like to do for fun is occasionally, you know, find interviews of scientists. And Rob Sawyer is a fantastic speaker. He has yes. 15 or 20 really great, uh, you know, he where he addresses Google and he addresses uh, other conferences and so forth. And he's talking about science. But what I get out of that, what I love out of that is seeing the way his brain works as he goes about figuring out what he needs um, before it, it before it all gets said, right? And yeah. so then at the end of the day, uh, maybe where the root of your question is, when do you jump off? If you, when you jump off right. the, the beaten path, um, how do you do that? And in Stealing the Sun, the place where I feel like I did that the most was as I'm working in where I really had actually some of the most fun was when I was beginning to work on um, trying to add the verisimilitude verisimilitude with the uh, to make it feel right uh, when it came to the math and the physics of wormhole development right we don't have wormholes in the real world as best as I know <laughs> right we don't have faster than life travel uh, and in in my world the the whole conceit that you determine pretty much right away is uh -huh. that um, is that humanity is going to go to the stars with faster than light travel by shooting these wormhole pods into the sun and into a sun into a star and using that fusion energy connected up into this new technology and engine drive to create something close to the warp kind of mindset right where you fold time or do whatever. And so what I had great fun with is working on what would the math look like if you had to do multidimensional, you know, I thought it had to be multidimensional. And so I read a bunch of stuff and learned a bunch of stuff about things like string theory and multidimensional math. It helps that my wife is a math major uh, with all theory and no application. I'm an engineer, all application, no theory. She's a, <laughs> you know, so we worked that out. Um, and so I, I think, you know, that's the most important thing for me in that sense was to know when I was playing with something that was not real. 
Um, and I actually equate that aspect to as I was writing my fantasy series, the Saga of the Gut Touch Mage, I created a fairly complex magic system, right? That I wanted to be cohesive. I wanted it yeah. to be proper and people mm-hmm. would read it and go, okay, well, that works. <laughs> right? Yeah. I want that same thing because effectively creating faster than light travel with wormhole flow of energy out of a sun into an engine is a piece of magic, right? You, you want that to, um, but you want it to be proper and you want people who read it to not just roll their eyes and say, Oh, that's, you're just hand wavy there. Now, some people, the super hardcore, Physicists might look at it and go, "Oh, yeah, that is hand waving." <laughs> but of course, it's science fiction. It's that's the place where you're jumping off. Um, but I think if you do it right, that's where it's also the most fun. Yeah, but it's also, and that gets back into the actual. I don't want to say it's purpose, but one of the facets of science fiction is that it does get the engineer, the scientist, whoever want. Oh, that's an interesting concept. I wonder, then yeah. start going in that direction. I, I did a um, interview with uh, another science fiction uh, writer, uh, Doug Richards, and he writes, he had this one most recent book called Portals, which is these portals and you get these wormhole things. Mm-hmm. But he does a lot. He's also scientist, and he's got a lot of, of um, it's interesting how much stuff actually exists and how close we are to certain things. And he talks about the research going into antimatter and what that would actually be. And, you know, the whole thing is that the, um, based on our current, you know, science technology, the universe should be contracting, but it's actually expanding. So what's making that happen. And so he's, you know, he went postulate along that direction there. And it's, it's amazing how much, stuff might be actually going on right. that we don't know he's in one of his books earlier ones i read there's actual patents that are filed on certain technologies which are still being written as science fiction but they're actual patents now right you know based upon however they got it from what they're seeing in these ufos that they are releasing you know right they're now giving this technology that they've got patents on. You know, yeah, like, I mean, that fits, you know, one of the things that I loved about being a astronomy club president in Arizona, which is, Arizona is a hotbed yeah. for astronomy, University of Arizona. Sure. Um, you know, in the process of a year or so, I probably interviewed maybe 25, uh, had dinner with and discussed things, maybe 25 of the top scientists in in the world. And, uh, and you know, one of them that strikes me the most was the, this young woman who led the team that did the first imaging of a real planet outside of our system. Right. I mean, yeah. And I was thinking there as I was eating dinner with her, you know, was going of all the billions of people who have lived on this earth, this is the one, this is the first person who actually was able to see another planet that, <laughs> um, you know, outside of, of our system. And I'm going, wow, the kinds of things that can be done today, the things that we're learning about about how the universe works today are things that, uh, yes, some science fiction writers were writing about them 70 years ago and 50 years right. ago and so forth. But even, even then, the, the brain can almost not capture <laughs> the, the glory of where things really are. 
right? And it's mm-hmm. part of what I love about the research question, right? That you run into things and you go, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't even know enough to ask that question. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, we're, our, our keynote speaker last year at the awards ceremony, uh, Lieutenant General uh, J.T. Thompson, Air Force, was one of the ones that created the Space Force. He was one of the major people that created Space Force. Cool. And he said, as it was going on, where we are now, we actually, we don't know a whole lot more now than we did like 2,000 years ago about space. When you get into it, you know, what there actually is to know, because the more that we see there is, the more we realize, oh my gosh, there's so much we do not know. Mm -hmm. So for him, it was science fiction. That was his inspiration to to delve in this area. We've had several astronauts as well as, as speakers who were, inspired by science fiction it made them want to go off and do this and go into space it was all science fiction at the time when they were starting but now it's a lot of stuff is science fact and you have the elon musks of the world that are right. you know pushing forward what's been being talked about for 100 years the colonization <laughs> of another planet you know yeah. they're actually taking that making that real yeah and i think you know to bring this back into the science fiction world i think the i think the world owes a a uh, debt to the old time golden age science fiction writers, you know, the Ray Bradbury's and the uh, Ed Hamilton's and the L. Ron Hubbard's and the, um, you know, even back in the, the second or <laughs> the second ages, right? With the Jerry Parnell's and the Robert Heinlein's and the so forth. Um, I mean, I know there were time periods where the where governments were bringing science fiction writers into the world, <laughs> into their world to talk about, uh, to open their minds up around what are, what yeah. are the opportunities. And certainly you can go back and read uh, old, uh, a friend of mine, uh, we were having some conversation about uh, why would anyone read old science fiction, right? And I'm going, oh my gosh, <laughs> why, do you, why do you even ask that question? <laughs> I mean, the stories are so are so brilliant, and the ideas and the and the and hope and the longing and the future forecasting. Um, you know, would we have had uh, space programs as early as we had without science fiction doing what science fiction does? I mean, we probably would have had them eventually, but I think yeah. I, I think that uh, you know the idea of adventure out in space is inherent to the human condition <laughs> and I think so, so, yeah. so i think we owe uh, old, old time science fiction writers in particular a, a, a silent debt of gratitude that they often don't really get or that when we start talking about them as science fiction fans regular people kind of roll their eyes and go oh yeah but no i don't think you understand thank you thank you get it no the first time i read the lensman series you know the, it's if somebody wants to they can shoot all kinds of holes but to me it was just all of a sudden Boom, I was out there. It was just, it was such an inspiration, that whole concept mm-hmm. of what that was in, in the cosmos. And even, you know, from Aresia, you know, you had the mentor and you find, it, find out that it's several of these different regions together as, as one right. entity. And it's like, wow, that's all cool. It's, you know, you could say, oh, well, that's just fantasy. Okay, but that was, that was space opera. That was pure, you know. Yeah. But they know the story, and I think that's one of the things new yeah. writers need to think about. You know, go back and read the canon. First off, it's nice to know the canon, but even beyond that, 
if you strip away, if you find a story where the science doesn't work anymore, but you still get into the story, you've learned, you know that writer understood story and understood the human condition because the human condition almost doesn't really care about the technical details. They care about what they can carry away from from the story. And I think that's what a writer, uh, the writers who are still read today understood story and understood humans and understood why stories matter to humans. (laughs) Yes. Right, because, you know, Whatever I write today, this is 2023 now, you know, 40 years from now, I'm going to be out of date, no matter what, no matter how advanced and cutting edge I think I am. Somebody who reads my stuff 40 years from now is going to, uh, is not going to get, is going to look, wow, look what he did. (laughs) Right. But your humanity and your storytelling, that, that's timeless. Yes. You know, how people react, you know, the thing. It is interesting that because uh, you earlier talking about time dilation, that I think it's the first novel ever written to address that subject was Elwin Hubbard's To the Stars. And um, it w- we re-released it in the early 2000s. And um, we had a, I think it was People Magazine. It was one of those popular magazines reviewed it. And they said it got, it got an A minus, you know, in their, in their stuff saying it's, it's as still as gritty and, and science today is, is it hasn't changed on the science today right. as it was back then, you know, when he wrote it in, um, I guess it was 1950 or late 40s or something like that. Right. But it's interesting, you know, some science hasn't changed in that point yet, but it's the people and that grittiness of it. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, what communicates in your storytelling too. Um, you. you get the people, you, you become attached to the people, which I think is important too, because if, something happens and you lose a person that you get that emotion on because you really mm-hmm. liked that person. I didn't, I only got to, to know and like those three people. So I didn't have sure. to experience. I mean, they definitely got seriously beat up, you know, <laughs> and well, things always have to get worse, John. That's, you know, I know. As, as AJ says, things get worse. <laughs> yeah. And they certainly did. And I was like, and sometimes it gets rough for me because I'm, I'm literally I'm reading a book a week right now. I'm reading like three books a week to get ready for superstars. Yeah. And um, I go through that curve and it's just because I'm, I'm making it so fast that curve hits and it's just, it has more impact when I get to like, no, no, you know? <laughs> and so when, um, when those heavy burns happen, I go, Oh no, Oh no. You know, don't kill your darling. Well, fortunately you didn't just, but because I'd gotten really attached to her, yeah. you know, and uh, so I'm, I mean, I, I, I like most of my characters to live, but which is good, you know. I, but I want the good guy. To, I want the good guy to basically win, and even if they're not winning, I want them always to be well known to be right, and they but they have to suffer to to get to their to their points. And I will say that uh, that I lose one or two before that's all said and done, but I won't say. Because you know, yeah. Well, I, I, cheated. I, I went to the end too. I went one and then and then nine. So I missed the part of the middle part just in preparations for this. So, but it's, I think it's so important to to the writers that are listening to this right here. You've got to have that emotional connection with at least the protagonist, but also, you know, get the emotion from the antagonist too, which makes it all the more gritty and. I kind of, that's when I'm like, 
Yeah, you know, I, you know I want to kind of hammer that a little bit because I hammer that in a little bit because that was for for me that was a bit of a learning period for me. I mean, intellectually, what you just said, you know, uh, you want to have your characters fully fleshed out and and be real human beings and so forth. Um, in my first ten years of writing, and even during my uh, writers of the feature time. Uh, it turns out that uh, to be to give myself a benefit of the doubt, I was a pretty good writer even then, but um, my stories were more hit and miss because I had not actually completely internalized the idea that in order to write full characters consistently, I have to just open myself and really write all the vulnerable pieces. All you know, oh, that piece of me I don't like so much. I better hold it back. Right. Well, as soon as yeah. I do that, then my characters get wooden. Right. Yeah. Um, I have to trust myself and trust the readers that if I put something out that came out of me that is not happy, <laughs> um, or or if I find something that maybe is happy but is too close to the bone, I still need to leave it out there. I need to I need to write the stories that matter to me. I need to I need to be myself, and I need to always throw myself out on the page. Right. Right. If I'm not throwing myself out on the page, then the then the work is uh, is yucky, <laughs> to use a very scientific term. It becomes yucky. Exactly. Right. Yes. Um. So I think I think that is a is a really key uh, a really key piece, and and I actually I wrote about that moment in a little book that I wrote on writing and reading short about short fiction. Um. Uh, I had a, a situation a workshop with Chris Rush and, and Dean Wesley Smith. And afterwards, another airplane <laughs> uh, epiphany, right? I wrote down stories yeah. that matter, and I circled it three times. And I went, that's my problem. When I'm writing stories that matter to me, I write really well. When I'm writing stories because I just think they might sell someplace, that's when things go off the track. So yeah. from that point on, I have always written stories that matter to me. And then they generally do pretty well. <laughs> yeah, well, I, on your story, like... I forget the colonel, um, the one that's that sabotaged the when he when he almost slaps or is like, oh no, you idiot! You know, I mean that's that made him more real. I didn't like that part about him, yeah, you know, at all. That's but true. that's real. You know, it's like who knows what you know can happen, and it just totally like she was cool. Like, oh no, you idiot. Mm-hmm. You know, and so then it just, they were like, okay, it's coming, 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 coming. And then all of a sudden, boom. You yeah. Know, just, and, you know, he just lost his temper. And so for me, writing that scene was number one, it was difficult because I don't like, I didn't like writing that either. But yeah. Number two, uh, I, I felt like I had to earn that moment. It, it needed to be there and it had to be earned. And so I needed to make sure that the lead up to it was um, believable in the sense that, you know, why would this character who, wouldn't normally do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. but why would he do that? You need to see that and, and be able to say, "Okay, I get it." And you know, otherwise, then you're just pushing the buttons, and nobody likes that. No, so hopefully, hopefully, just... I earned that. Well, yeah, you know, you did. I mean, it's definitely stuck with me. And and like, I was in there, you know, like, oh no, why'd you do that? You know, like. I'm in this story, you know, as that's happening. I totally didn't like that. I thought he's an idiot for what he just did there. But in the fact that she had herself an earlier incident where 
it actually had played out, you know, being struck and kind of like, okay, now I can see why her reaction is that way. So she was very plausible. Um, and so just, it's, okay, that's, that's humanity. That was humanity in action. And it's that storytelling, that line, that, that it's the people in there that kept that, um, the people senior, like you talk about story, but it kept that senior to the technology. So it made it easier to accept the technology because the people were so real. Thank you. Yeah. So um, now have you read any of, of um, Hubbard's stories at all? Oh, yeah. Um, L. Ron Hubbard actually has had a, uh, a warm place in my heart well before, the <laughs> well before the contest. And in particular, because I have a very hard time. Uh, every time that I think of L. Ron Hubbard, I think of my uncle Dennis. Who was uh, was eleven years older than me and passed away early um, due to some medical issues. But uh, he's the one who introduced me to science fiction and comic books and so forth. And I can I will always you know this photographic picture of sitting in his room, kind of laying up against his bed with his bookshelf, uh, just this row of Battlefield Earth, and then later on Mission Earth and all sorts of stuff like that. I was not introduced to L. Ron Hubbard's shorter stuff. Uh, um, until considerably later, right? But um, every time I think of L. Ron Herbert, I think of my uncle, and um, huh. and that leads me some, to some uh, very good, very good memories. But the thing that I've read that I carry the most, and I have read multiple times actually, is Fear, um, yeah, which I picked up after the first workshop, um, after the first Red of the Future workshop. Uh, specifically for the legend, right? The you know he wrote it in one train setting, right? <laughs> I thought, well, I want to write like that. I want to write that fast. Could, can you actually write books that are good that fast? And um, yeah, it was gripping. It's a it's a great piece of work. And um, yeah, uh, the uh, the short picture the short fiction that I loved the most from Elron Herbert was when I was out there several a couple years back doing the blog post for thirty three or thirty four. Yeah. Um, and uh, you guys put on the radio play. Yeah. Um, that was awesome. That, that was uh, <laughs> such a gripping story. And uh, there were times where I just closed my eyes and let the whole thing flow. Again, L. Ron Hubbard understands story, right? You can battlefield earth, you can pick science pieces apart in certain ways. And, you know, equipment that's been sitting there for however many years works perfectly. Well, you know, that's nice. Um, but at the end of the day, L. Ron Hubbard understands story. And he understands what art means and he understands that that's that's why he's still read today. I mean that's <laughs> that's the point. Um so Okay. Good. Well thank you on that. Yeah, it's um I mean that was also the whole reason why he was able to to start and be so effective on creating this contest, the writers of the future. Mm -hmm. We're now in the contest itself is in the fortieth year. You know, so we're doing the we're getting quarterly winners now that'll be published in year 40 in volume 40. Yeah, that's awesome. And, uh, it's amazing. When I, I remember interviewing uh, Bob Silverberg and he said he wrote one of the first essays, you know, if this makes it to 10 years, that'll be great. And then I got him again. He's written three different essays for over the years. And each time he says, if it makes it to this, that'd be awesome. If it makes it this, it'd be awesome. And now it's, it's long since passed. The last time he wrote something was volume 25. Yeah. And if you think about that, I mean, 40. Um, you know, there's 12, uh, 12 authors per volume plus uh, a handful of 
published finalists. So, you know, what it basically means is you got 500 plus people walking around on the earth. And, it, and I say that purposely because writers, one of the things I loved about Writers of the Future is that it's global, right? We had people, I think the individual who illustrated my first story, I think was from Poland. And, you know, yeah. you've got 500 people who are writers and another, you know, 350 or whatever illustrators, because I know sometimes you have illustrators do more than one, uh, more than one story that have been influenced by this legacy <laughs> of the contest, right? And yeah, not all of them go on to write forever, but right. an awful lot of them do. Um, that's right. And that's, uh, you know, that's an amazing, uh, amazing thing to, to leave behind. Yeah, this year we've got winners from nine countries being published in volume 39. There you go. That's, yeah. It is, uh, it is really amazing to think about if you, uh, you, yeah, I'm, I'm certain that the people that are working on it day to day get caught up in the weeds, but I certainly hope that occasionally you get to step back and look at what is what you've done. Right? Yeah, <laughs> well, well, what you've I mean, done, John. <laughs> exactly. I get, I get my nose rubbing the stuff all the time. But on this time here at the, at the plus side of life, that's why I enjoy like this conversation with you. It's so much fun because you know, you've got your trajectory, your curve, and I got started and I can find out how you know, the influence and the effect that Rise of the Future had with you and the judges and the legacy they had, AJ was amazing, you know, Rob Sawyer and um, the other, you know, just the, the various people and all, I, I remember the various things. I remember one time when we were, uh, we went to Cape Kennedy for a Rise of the Future event and um, Jack Williamson. Oh, yes. He, he passed away uh, some years ago, but he was in his 80s and he'd started writing in 24, I think was his first story he had never seen a space launch and so when we went to cape canada we saw one of the shuttle launches we were a mile away we were the closest civilians and there we we're there on a little pad of 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 land surrounded by swamp and, and you had the signs posted don't go near the the water because there's alligators and snakes and then when you you know he was there along with all these other scientists i mean all these other science fiction writers who were themselves many of them were scientists um their day job really was rocket scientists. And um, they were like little kids, even though they were like 70, 80 years old, you know, feeling that rumble of the engine when it finally hits you, that wave of sound, that shock wave of the taking off. Um, they were just like little kids. It was just, there's so many amazing memories that yeah. exist. So, but being able to talk with you and other past winners, you know, talking with Dean and Chris, you know, and whatnot, it's just, you really see the legacy that Mr. Hubbard left and yeah. it's really nice being part of that and just you know yeah i met this. yeah i, I met uh, jack williamson you mentioned how i met him yeah. in the first uh writers of the future week and that was like a highlight of my my career too I yeah jack williams um you know I, I think science fiction is an interesting uh world because you can go to science fiction conventions and meet lots of people that are you know we're a very accessible uh community especially and now with social media you can contact all sorts of folks Right. Um, but the workshop is a different situation. You're, you're in a really intimate uh, situation for, you know, you're sitting there for a week with three of the best instructors that you can run into. And then you've got this never ending stream where you spend two days sitting down and talking, you know, Jack Williamson comes in and he's around for two or three days and you can talk with him and Jerry Purnell when he was alive and Larry Niven and, 
um, you know, just this never-ending stream of really interesting people um, that, yes, you can go to a convention, but you might get 15 minutes of somebody's time to chat. But instead, you're sitting there all night with Dave Wolverton talking about what it means to be a career writer, right? I mean, talk uh -huh. about a life-changing uh, opportunity, right? You don't get that opportunity when you go to a, to a convention. That's right. And, now I just looked at the clock and went, oh my gosh, we've gone an hour. So let's, I'm going to, I need to wrap this up. But for someone that's not familiar with your works, what do you recommend as, and you can break it down by genre too, if you want to, sure. as um, introduction to Ron Collins? Well, well, my two primary series are the Stealing the Sun series that we've been talking about uh, quite a bit. Obviously, uh -huh. that's my, my current hard science fiction series. Um, I also have a uh, epic fantasy fantasy series, uh, Saga of the God Dutch Mage, uh, that did quite well when it was uh, first launched and still sells today. Um, people seem to uh, describe it as uh, what fantasy would be if you took out all of the dross stuff that nobody reads, <laughs> which I kind of liked. You know, yeah. That was cool. Uh, the more, more uh, fun thing going on right this minute is my daughter and I, my daughter is also a, a writer. Uh, she writes a lot of uh, fantasy and fae kind of things. And we are uh, just now getting ready to launch a brand new series of uh, baseball in, in fae land um, uh, series that's going to go onto a Kickstarter here. Uh, I think you can actually find it right now as far as the preliminary notifications are concerned. So that's going to be my next. Uh, series going forward and then sometime later this year I'm going to do another collaboration with my brother who is a musician out there in Los Angeles and we're going to do a multimedia uh, just a fun wacky star cruise thing where a couple of brothers uh, who are entertainers hop from cruise line to cruise line and run into kind of scooby-doo mysteries that are, <laughs> are going to be kind of fun so uh, you can find me on on my website uh, typosphere.com it's probably the best way to find all the different things that I mean. Great. Well, thank you very much, Ron. And it's been, as I knew it would be, a lot of fun, you know, having a chance to, to chat with you. And I really enjoyed reading the books too. So that's that's definitely my my perk for my job is being able to read such amazing fiction. <laughs> yeah, you have a very tough job, John. I, I feel I feel for you to have to read all of these <laughs> all of these books in order to do your job. Thank you so much. I've had a great time and it's been great catching up with you and I hope to see you again soon. Absolutely. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We are especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Ron. Thank you so much, John. Have a great day.